Yeah, said it. <laughs> um, you are on the house list. You're back on the house list. Yo, someone hit me up a couple of days ago. They said, Peter, they they can't find my name. I'm at the club right now. I said, tell them you're on the house list with Peter Augustin. Um, this is a special Thanksgiving week episode. I'm going to do two episodes this week. Uh, I'm going to try to, um, which I've been wanting to do. I'm very grateful to be able to have the opportunity to even do this and to talk to the people I'm talking to on it. Um, have anybody check it and um, like it. So if you guys have been feeling this, please subscribe on iTunes. That's the best way to hear it on a regular basis. I'm building it out so you can hear it on a few other platforms. But, you know, it's just me and my man CJ. But it's really just me as far as building this this thing out. So... I got to work at my own pace here. I got a lot of stuff going on. I know you do too. Right now I'm in Virginia. I'm at my uh, parents' house in Blacksburg, Virginia, where I grew up, um, visiting for the Thanksgiving holiday. So um sitting in my old room, quickly trying to um, knock out a couple intros and outros for you. Um especially if you're out there traveling this week you know be safe and be careful if you're uh, stuck home alone this week if you're you know preparing for a lot of people to show up at your house and mess up your house and you're cleaning and you got headphones on you're making a lot of food and you got headphones on that's that's how I prefer to do it then um you know check this out check this podcast out why don't you it ain't bad. It's not bad. Um, you know what I'm saying? So with that being said, um, I do have a really great episode for today's uh, new joint. It's uh, with the one and only Billy Jam. Yes, Billy Jam. Many people from... Northern California, from the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco, Vallejo, Richmond, San Jose, they'll definitely know this name, Billy Jam, from Hip Hop Slam. Also, if you're from the New York, greater New York City, New Jersey area, you'll know Billy Jam from the famed, um, incredible, non-commercial station, uh, Treasure in America, if you ask me, WFMU. Um, and here's a special catch with this particular episode is um, we were able to go into one of the studios at WFMU in Jersey City, in New Jersey, uh, like a week or two ago um, from this date and um, record our episode in one of their studios uh, while Billy was preparing for his own weekly show he has uh, on the air there. So he was generous enough to to let me get up in there. Took the train uh, from Brooklyn. Peeped out the new World Trade Center um, stop, which is amazing. I highly recommend doing that on my way. And then, um, yeah, we were in FMU and, and, and knocked it out. So if you've ever been a band that played in FMU, we were in that studio where you where the bands play, you know. So it was cool, and it was the way I really love and hope I can 
get to a point of doing this show whereas two nice mics we both had headphones on we both had a mixing board you know so that's the idyllic way for me to get this show to right now you know i'm doing everything on a handheld Tascam mic yo Tascam, holler at me Uh, right now i'm recording the intro on my phone you know i'm not even gonna try to go there with that but um so making it work and you know what that's all good i'm not tripping about that and the content in my opinion is is solid and the conversations are great so on this episode of the house list billy jam we did it in a studio it sounds cool i i really like the way um sonically it sounds and we talked about him coming to the states from ireland where he was born and um you know how he got situated here he's a really interesting dude basically uh, a legend in uh, on terrestrial radio but also kind of a pioneer in the pirate radio world he he also like um helped establish and and really helped behind the scenes with a lot of seminal bay area hip hop artists so i'm talking about master p e40 andre nicotina um all the way to Invisible Scratch Pickles, and uh, and I cannot even forget uh, Mac Dre, who he had a really close relationship with. He was a character witness on on a trial he had to go through, and you know Mac Dre spent a few years in jail. Billy Jam was uh, definitely tried to help him a lot during that period of time. Uh, they have an amazing few I- interviews that are floating out there that I highly recommend checking out. So we talk about all that stuff. So it's like uh, a whole range of stuff. It's not just hip hop, but it's about radio. It's about hitchhiking in America. It's about, um, it's just a great conversation. This dude is is really cool. He's got a, a an awesome history. Um, I think if you know who he is, then you're really going to enjoy this. Because he's been around for a minute too. So he, he hits on a few different levels for people. But especially if you have any history in radio terrestrial radio or or pirate radio too and i've done both um so for me it was a treat to just talk about that stuff with billy so again um i hope you guys enjoy it you are tuned into the house list it's my weekly podcast um and please subscribe on itunes please leave a comment to you know let me know that you guys are listening let me know if you're liking it or not it's also on soundcloud as an alternative to itunes Um, as the house list podcast so check it out and listen if you're having if this is you know that you're listening to this during your thanksgiving week and you're traveling or you're with a bunch of people or if you're with nobody at all i just want to say thank you for spending a little bit of time with me and my guests today and and if you check out any of the other episodes you know just know that uh, i do this um, from a place of love i love all the people i talk to i love doing it and it's very diy so you know that um, I'm coming from a from a good place with it, so enjoy and um, be safe, y'all. And uh, I'm grateful for y'all. Very thankful to be doing this. Check it out. Check my talk out now. Finally, that I'm done yammering at you. Here's me and Billy Jam live from WFMU on the House List. Check it out. I'd love to just kind of talk about really quickly where we're recording it because i've yet to do this is kind of an anomaly so far for me where we're actually recording it in a radio station in a terrestrial radio station here in new jersey in jersey city 
at WFMU. And I'm here with Billy Jam, the one and only, as he kind of gets prepared. Um, but it's fun for me because I, I really got my start in terrestrial radio, too. So I'm a little more comfortable here sitting in a chair with headphones and a proper mic. But here we are, WFMU. Billy, how long have you been working here for? Because this is actually where I, I met you when you were when you were here, but I know that New York isn't really part of your origin story. Well, WFMU, uh, which is, in my biased opinion, like the best uh, radio station, freeform, listener-supported, is in Jersey City, New Jersey, as you mentioned. I've been here on the air in the studios uh, for 11 years, Mm -hmm. but for about four years before that, approximately... Uh, maybe two years before that, I was contributing shows to WFMU to Brian Turner, the, the uh, wonderful music director here, mm-hmm. who I got to know from sending him music from my label. And he used to right. play a lot of it, or the radio station would play a lot of it, including him as a DJ. Uh, so 11 years as a regular DJ. But before that, I would do kind of like mix specials. I put together these turntable orchestration sessions back in California, and we would produce them for this radio station. And then there's one in London called Resonance FM. Mm. We would do some for there and some other stations, too, we would do them for. Interesting. Yeah, because you really, I mean, you know, there's a couple different reference points for for you that I know. But I know that the radio in general has played like a pretty huge part of all the stuff that you've been involved in, too. So... Um, I'd love to first kind of figure out really like not just where you got your start, but, um, obviously like when you came to the States, like where you're from Ireland. I'm from Ireland. Yeah. From, from Dublin or from Dublin. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, when, when did you actually move to the States and did you go? Cause really for people that might not know now, if you live like in Northern California or in the greater Bay area, then I think everybody knows who you are. Um, a lot of people do if or you know you're familiar with WFMU but did you go straight to San Francisco or to the Bay Area when you came to the US or, or well first I came I hit I've hitchhiked across the United States several times really okay. I even I like up in Canada too I even like hopped on freight trains uh, one one time coming across country so I had kind of like got a real sort of you know grassroots uh, feel for America traveling around and the first time I came here was 1978 I came back again in 79, and then I relocated here, first to New York City, Upper West Side, in uh, 79, towards the end of 79, and was in New York for two years. And then Mm. I went out then, uh, two years later, to uh, the Bay Area, to California. Right. And hitchhiking as well with my my girlfriend at the time. We went across country and then settled in Berkeley. And I uh, tried to get involved at first with Calix Radio, and they were like all punk rock then. And they were right. like, uh, well, you don't know enough about the music. And I was like, oh, man, I love music. So <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I, I was like, okay, well, that's not going to deter me. So what I did was I started going to the record stores, and I got every record I could. And I listened okay. to the radio nonstop, Calix, KPU, uh, KUSF. Right, great. All, all of these great, stations. great stations. Yeah, and and actually, even though when I was in New York, I listened to the radio, but I used to listen to the black stations and some of the rock stations. But I didn't really know very much. Like I really didn't know WFMU, and I didn't know what college radio was. So really, mm. my education for that came about there. But what I ended up doing was I would go to these record stores, and there was one called Universal on Telegraph in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and you could uh, rent records for the day. Really? So you could go in and get a brand new shrink wrap record, like the one you handed me earlier, and uh, take it home 
for and then bring it back, and it would end up costing you one dollar. If it was used, it would be fifty cents. So I would just go. <laughs> I would record all these on these cassettes. So I built right. like a huge library of stuff, and I worked my way through the record store, through every type of music there was. Like, like, so you're just because your show too. I mean, your tastes are pretty eclectic. There are a little bit all you're pulling from a lot of different places. So even then, you were just. What kind of records do you remember that you were pulling? Because this is what, 1980, 81? Yeah, it was 81, uh, 82. Right. And then, like, I officially began then in 84 at Calix after sort of like listening to the station, listening to all these other stations, then in like going to these record stores and buying records and or renting records and listening to them. And it was all over the place. Like, I first, like, I got into, like, I listened to classical. Like, I figured mm. that even if I didn't know the music, I would sort of school myself on it. And uh, I learned a lot. And then I, I started to realize that if you listen to any type of music enough, that you can learn to love it. Mm. <clears throat> For example, I never really heard like the blues, like the chess blues recordings. And right. then I just fell in love with those things. I was like, oh, my God, like all this music, Muddy Waters, it blew me away right. when I first heard it. Yeah. I just like I didn't know, you know, about this music. So uh, that was sort of my uh, my schooling in it. Mm. Well, it's a world unto itself, too. So, um what in Dublin were I mean what was your were you into music then were you seeing music yeah. then Yeah I was into music then uh, my dad was a DJ and oh. it's funny because just recently like when uh, Bob Dylan got the Nobel Peace uh, Prize right. or got nominated for it I was thinking about how <clears throat> my dad and it was funny because when I was like 14 in school and the guys who were in the next level up in O'Connell school which was the secondary school like high school I went to right. <clears throat> these guys would be like oh man your your old man's into Dylan and I'm like, yeah. And I was like, I didn't realize that that was an unusual thing. But my dad sort of had that bringing it all back home, that, that album. And mm. so I sort of grew up like hearing that. And then he also listened to other types of music too, like rock, folk, and country. And so I kind of learned that. Mm. And then I was into, uh, there was sort of the rise of the Irish Celtic folk music, right. where there was like folk and rock, Celtic folk and rock mixed together, right. groups like Horse Lips and that. So I was into all of those. And I was really into Thin Lizzy. Of course, as and am I. Was, I. And I was really into taste. And then I was so mm. uh, ignorant at the time that I didn't realize that taste, Rory Gallagher, uh, was borrowing from the American blues. I sort of knew a bit about it, but I really didn't put, connect all of the dots fully until uh, later on. Right. So well, that's even Thin Lizzy, I mean, Phil had a lot of uh, blues, like soulful blues inflection, too. I mean, that's some of the best stuff is that really blues-heavy Thin Lizzy stuff, I feel like. Um, yeah. Did you ever see him live? Yeah, many t- I even saw in, him, in even Ireland. in New York. I saw Thin Lizzy too nice. um, at uh, what well, Webster Hall it used to be something else. The Palladium, maybe or Ritz. Ritz. Yes. Yeah, I saw it then, but um, Dope. but yeah, but I also uh, my brother, my older brother was into uh, music too, so I would listen all, to all the records he got. But it's funny, you know, listening back and going back over time, like in Ireland and England compared to America. It was really expensive to buy records. I bet, yeah. Uh, so it was like twice the price, approximately. When I first came to America, I couldn't believe that you could buy an album for as cheap as you could. So, <clears throat> especially if you're broke, and I was really broke, sure. a broke student, I had no money. So if I bought, if you bought a record, then you really loved it. So um, I didn't have like a huge collection, but I did uh, treasure whatever records I did. Well, that have. makes uh, renting records pretty, uh, uh, pretty uh, uh, enjoyable, I would think. There. So okay, so go- coming back to. To Berkeley, and you were living in Berkeley at the time too, or yes. Okay, cool. So that was really yeah, where you first settled in California, right? So then, what? Talk about just really quickly, just settling into Calex, which is is a pretty much an institution in the East Bay. I mean, it's obviously it's just like in a way FMU, it's similar. Um, 
So how did you uh, fall into a show there? Because that, that's your first show in the Bay, so that's pretty, yeah. pretty big. Well, first what I did was, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I went to them, it was like 82, and I went along, tried to get in, and they were like, oh, no, you don't know crap about music. And uh, <clears throat> so I was, went and sort of went, tried to figure it out. And then I went back, and I realized that it was a tough thing to get into, that it was kind of set up, great DJs, but they weren't giving up their shows. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, how the hell can I get in here? So I thought, I'll create my own show. So I got into public affairs, hmm. and uh, I started off in public affairs, and then created a public affairs show. What do you mean? What exactly do you mean by public affairs? Public affairs uh, is more kind of uh, community interviewing and editing. So I learned editing that mm. way, which is great, and I learned it all on reel to reel, which is why I can appreciate, you know, doing it on a laptop now. How simple it is sure. in comparison to literally, you know, getting the, the razor blade and the, the, uh, the white chalk tape and cutting it and doing all this, which I did many, many hours upon hours of for editing, like, all of the uh, curses out of uh, so many rap songs over the years, which I got in trouble for continually. But um, uh, so, uh, I, so I learned, I got into that and then created my own show and then started DJing also, doing, like, sort of fill-in things. So I sort of figured out a way to beat the system. And then I got in and then I got on the air and got, like, was... Uh, regular DJing, you know, from, from that, pretty much from near the beginning on the first year, I got like to DJing and then got a show and uh, throughout the 80s. And then I fell into uh, uh, <clears throat> hip hop music, which was sort of still new and still considered in the early 80s, uh, you know, a fad, but I, right. I thought it was great. Was it, so what was that? What, for you, what, what was that record? Um, well, when I was in New York, of course, that right. was when I first heard all of the hip-hop music. And I would go up to Harlem to buy my weed, uh -huh. and uh, I'd hear even more music when I'd go up there. Because I lived on Upper West Side up by uh, Columbia University on 107, which is a different area than it is now. It's changed a lot since then. I'm sure. <clears throat> but uh, so, like, uh, the first ones I heard were all of, like, the regular ones. The, right. the Curtis Blow, the Breaks, you know, and uh, Sugar Hill Gang and, and all of these. And then throughout the 80s, and then, like, I remember, too, with Calyx, which is really a good example of a college radio um, for anywhere in the U.S. at the time was, you know, they were playing New Order and Africa Bombada, like, back-to-back. -back. And those were the stuff that uh, got so much love from people who weren't necessarily into uh, hip-hop, although there wasn't that much. Mm -hmm. So I got into all of that as well. And then all the people coming out, like Fat Boys and different people who had their own sort of take on, right. on it. Right. And uh, all of that music. And then by the 86, I started to notice that there was uh, a rise in like Bay Area. There, no one was, there was a very few records coming out, but I noticed a lot of uh, rappers out there. And mm. I tried to get into doing the hip hop on the show there that they did it. <coughs> With locals? Uh, yeah, but I tried to get on there, but it was more kind of like uh, African American, and they kind of people would look at me like, "Who the hell is this white guy?" You know, and mm -hmm. I was like, "No, I really like this music." And uh, so I ended up sort of getting a show then myself, and uh, I did a, a rap contest in 1986 of Bay Area rap. So I did flyers up. And me and my girlfriend, we used to be like we were totally into music all the time, and because we had all these cassettes right. that I'd be constantly making, and then we'd be like doing little mixtapes and you know, mixtures of stuff. And we figured out how to do kind of off of my, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the setup, the stereo I had, like by pressing down certain buttons, you could kind of mix without a mixer. And then I finally got mm. my, my little realistic mixer from uh, Radio Shack. But um, So a pause mixtape. Pause mixtape, exactly. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, I, we, we'd do flyers. Like we'd have cassette cover uh, art shows. 
and we did them at our house. <laughs> and what really? we did, because we started, people would come over to the yeah, house. Yeah, so and we cleared out our, our our living room and basically turned it into a gallery hmm. where we lived, and we just put up flyers all over, and invited people, and we got a good response right. uh, from people who had like they were like punk rockers, and then guys who were into the Grateful Dead, and some people were into kind of like hip hop stuff, and they would do it. So, but anyway, I started to. So then, when I did this uh, contest like a couple of years later in 1986 for uh, hip hop, local rap. I just went all over the Bay Area and put up these flyers, did flyers, and got a good response from people. Mm. And then I went to a place called Whole Earth Access and said, this was mm. like a big store okay. uh, that doesn't exist anymore. And they were like a discount store. And I convinced them to give me a big boom box as a prize. And <coughs> no problem. And then I also went to, uh, which was actually not too far from there in Berkeley and also near where, I, where we lived at the time, me and my girlfriend, went down to... Um, fantasy studios okay. and i convinced them to give me a whole bunch of records and uh, get somebody uh, a chance to go in and sort of have their music heard ah, I see. so i did this thing in 86 and the response was really overwhelming uh, so i had people like davy d who hadn't yet started at the station i had him as a judge mm, and he was like the wow. bronx prince was his name then he had just got kind of relocated he was in in uc berkeley at the time as a student and uh, different people Oh, and also I had a guy, Rico Casanova, from the Pro's record pool. And back then, record pools were very important. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, So that was, a, the Pro's record pool was a big uh, Bay Area record pool, It right? was in Oakland. It was a big deal because, yeah. you know, and, and that was the thing. Like, sort of people, like, they connect with certain record pools so they could get the in on, on this music. Right, for sure. But primarily for, like, club DJs or mixtape DJs. It was almost more less for the radio but more for the guys that weren't on the radio but that were serious performance djs in the 80s and 90s yeah record pools now kind of don't exist anymore in a way right except uh, for i guess the some of the websites that kind of cater to like electronic djs there's certain ones that you're do. right yeah in a way like even like a beat port or something like exactly. that would, be, thinking, would yeah. be the modern equivalent of a uh, record pool um I mean, they even had video. I learned this from doing this podcast, too. I didn't really realize this, but there were also, of course, music video pools, too, because when they play videos uh, in clubs, you know, exactly. uh, back in the day before pre-MTV. You exactly. Know. Yeah, so. Um, and I'm sure you were seeing even little bits of that as well. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so so this concert, that was kind of your break into the <clears throat> so local on the, hip-hop scene. Yeah, so that was like on the radio. So I did like a series of things where I got people to uh, send in stuff. Oh, so it was like a battle of a battle of, of songs and yeah. stuff, basically. Okay. And then I put together this uh, you know panel of judges for the final show, which included Rico from that uh, uh, pros record pool, Davey D, and uh, <coughs> pardon this, yeah, and some others. And then we kind of we picked the winner, and then the guy um, he ended up putting out a record then on his right the same one on TNT Macola. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. which um, you know people would be more come to be familiar with through Jerry Heller and NWA and uh, JJ Fad and stuff. Even uh, Egyptian Lover. Too. Yeah. Yep. And Digital Underground. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. On Macola. Which, but that was a LA label, was it not? Or it was, was an LA label, and that kind of the, the Bay Area LA connection <clears throat> was pretty tight because you know geographically they're only um, you know 400 miles apart or less. So a lot of times right. people would do that. Like even with NWA. When they first came up to the Bay Area, they went to Calix Radio in 86 and uh, were on there. And I remember it was uh, Omar Parker had them on, and uh, it was really interesting. This was when they were probably just promoting the Posse album, right? Yeah, exactly, the right. very first records. Right. 
Did you meet those guys back then? No, I didn't meet them uh, then. And again, this was like when it was the Sunday morning uh, crew. And things tended to be a little more segregated. So my, sure. my thing was to try and break the barriers, you know, and sort of... And also, I was heavily into punk rock, so... Were you mixing the genres on the show? Yeah. Okay. So my thing was... So that's why I came up with the name Hip Hop Slam. Not as in slam spoken word, but more like slam dancing. Right. So my thing was to take, you know, Minor Threat and uh, then the hip hop of the day and sort of play, play both of those back to back. How closely were you involved with like the punk scene in, in San Francisco and Oakland in, in the mid 80s? Was it an equal tit for tat? Because I mean, a lot of people know you from hip hop, but um, how involved were you with bands in, in, in that I community? Was, uh, well, um, I was pretty closely involved. Um, Operation IV, well, Basic Radio, who preceded Operation IV, I used to have them come on my show a cool. lot. So I was sort of, and they were per, to perform live. And with the punk band, so I learned to sort of, like, I love radio. I love the art form of radio and always have. So <clears throat> what I would do is I wouldn't even have, like, we are in here now at WFMU where it's like a full setup in the next room. Right. And be, underneath here is a whole mixing board. This is geared for recording, like, a live band. Drum kit, everything is, like, all sort of isolated and done. I would do the opposite. I would have, like, just total ghetto dirt style. So what I do is I would say, like, if this was the radio and you're the vocalist, I'd have you there. And if you were to play guitar, I'd have you say, kind of keep your guitar amp away a little over there. And we put the drummer in the doorway because we know he'd be really loud. And we just sort of do it that way. We just pick it up with the mic. We pick it up. Like and that. then I'd have this mic up here so that we might have the bass player standing here and he might be doing the backing vocals. So on two mics, we would do these sessions. And right. actually, they came out okay. Right, right. I mean, that would be more, that would, you see that a lot more back in the day for yeah. sure. So yeah. So I wasn't as heavily to answer your question. I wasn't as heavily into punk rock, but I was into it, and I lo I just right. loved it. Would you? I mean, now this is not to sidetrack too too much, but really quickly, Operation Ivy is like preeminent California ska band. Now, would you? Now, knowing that there is a large history of ska, of original ska music from Jamaica and from uh, Great Britain too, like, what was your thoughts on a band like? Operation Ivy, which is very different from that style of the original ska stuff. Like, what was your take on it just then? I just, just curious, you know. Since I liked you were there. it. I liked it, but I mean, I was into, and Calix Radio also was heavily into uh, the British second wave of ska too, and the first one because, <clears throat> if you recall, like in the '80s, reggae was uh, was a lot more popular than uh, it, like it is even now. Right. And, uh, you know, there was so much crossover. Uh, groups like The Clash, who uh, they would sort of, they bridged the gap and incorporated a lot of stuff. And Linton Kwesi Johnson would be as popular on the college radio yes. as, you know, a regular punk rocker, even more so than hip hop even at the time. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm, but for I, me, I like them. Um, I did, you know, I, I just thought it was like a whole new take on a, a traditional sound. Yeah, totally. And even like the Bay, like Bay Area hip hop too, is so unique to its to its kind of sound and, and its history and origin. That's really incomparable to any other region for if you're going to talk about regional music and stuff too. So, so but now we we did figure out the origin almost of hip hop slam, which which would evolve into not only the sh the show, but it would eventually be a record label too. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, oh, so but some time definitely would elapse until till that. So uh, when like, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when uh, when did you start 
creating hip hop slam into a la- into a label as well. That's like later in the ni- late nineties, right? Mid nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, latter latter nineties actually. Okay. So what I did first was under an alias. Um, I worked in commercial radio too. Oh, I didn't know that. <clears throat> and I also learned that you know if you really want to do something, you got to just kind of focus on it and figure out. Like I was saying about how I couldn't get a, a DJ slot on Calyx because everybody wanted it and the guys who were on there weren't moving and it was sort of set up so I figured okay how can I get in there and I thought oh I'll create a show like I'll do a half hour talk show go out interview bands do this that and the other and then kind of figure it out the same thing like with the radio too Uh, my first commercial uh, radio job was in 1986 I got a job and they were like okay well it's in the news department and you'll be writing sports. Are you into <laughs> sports? And I hate, I'm not going to hate sports. I just couldn't give a damn about sure. sports. Yeah. Not American sports. I like soccer. I uh, like, you know, some, some European sports, uh, but mainly just soccer, football. So I realized that, hey, you can figure out anything. And then they were like, you have to type too. But I had taken a typing course at, in New York. I'd gone to one of the colleges here and just learned, but never practiced it. Well, I figured it out right away. <laughs> and I did it and jumped in and got a job there. What was the station? It was at KKCY, the city. Mm. Does that, what did that, and that's obviously can't be there anymore, right? Is it something? No, it's long gone. Right. But that's sort of, I figured out kind of ways just sort of to, to worm your way in or sort of, sort of create your own thing. So that's kind of how I did it. And when I was there then, when the, some of the people, they had been, you know, and again, as a fan of, of radio as, you know, a medium and an art form, uh, there were some of the guys who had been there from the, um, the uh, the stations, the original freeform stations in San Francisco, um, like uh, uh, the uh, KMP, KPM, KMPX, I think it is, and uh, different ones. So there was like Norm Davis, and uh, they had uh, KSAN. They had the original, uh, the Sex Pistols had been on there when they mm. came, and they played in January 14th, 1978, the final show in San Francisco. And before that show, they did. Uh, they went on the radio. So I got all the original reel-to-reel recordings of this and all of these other back stuff from Norm Davis, who was on KSAN. Wow. And you still have that stuff? Yeah. So what I did then was I edited it all down as a special for Calyx. And then I thought, you know, this is so cool. I really love it. And it was more interesting was when the people would call in on the phone and they'd start messing with the listeners. And that was, like, even funnier. And uh, it, was, it was really, like, entertaining. So I did that right. as, uh, under an alias name, like, because it was essentially a bootleg. So I put that out as a CD. And that was mm. my first CD. And that kind of gave me the idea for it. And I thought, okay, well, this is how you put together a CD. You get the music, you edit it, which I already had. Then you track it. Then you master it. Then you come up with the artwork. Right. And then you get the cover art done. You know, you get the proofs for the covers and so on and so forth. So... That was sort of my test run. And then, and I did it as a benefit for like AIDS charity. Mm. So all the money went to that. And it was uh, kind of fun to do it. And then that was what gave me the idea. And then I did the first ones were Invisible Scratch Pickles. I did those. And then I realized, which we had done in my living room as part of like this pirate radio series. So I started putting them out. And then I thought, okay, this is cool. So I took the money I got from that and then started putting out compilations. Right. And, and all did about 50 different releases. Most of them were like really, you know, lo-fi recordings a lot of them were compilations a lot of uh, scratch music which dave paul with bomb hip-hop had already done so i was really kind of following his lead but we shared all of the the same taste in music so. right right which i wanted to talk to too uh, about your connection with dave paul bomb hip-hop magazine which started as a magazine first right exactly so because you 
I can only assume that as a, your your work kind of dabbling in radio started to evolve and your tastes evolved living there, you were also you started writing as well. You were writing. You wrote for a lot of these uh, publications around there too, right? Yeah, and again, it's kind of weird. You know, like how things just sort of happen, and it's right. probably the same with you. How you just sort of fell into things right. by doing what you love first right. and foremost. So that's what I did. So then with this radio commercial radio station, I started off writing sports. Then I ended up getting on the air which was great. And so then I was like a DJ on a commercial station. At the same time, I'd landed, a, a, I was still on Calyx doing punk rock. And then I had also gotten into KPFA, which is a Pacifica station, like right. the WBAI here. And uh, well, I used to hang out with the guys who did Maximum Rock and Roll, the punk rock show. Oh, wow. Okay. And I would go in their, their show, but just like occasionally I was sort of, a, I wasn't really a hardcore, but I would contribute. And then I'd go over like to uh, Tim Yohannan. He was the guy, the late, great Tim Yohannan in San Francisco. And he had this amazing record library. And we'd go over and just sort of hang out and file records and put things together. For people that don't know who that is, who is that really quickly? Well, he's like the founder of Maximum Rock and Roll, which is this, like, it was a radio show and then also like magazine. Well, still, still exists. Still is a magazine. Still exists. Very, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, a punk rock newsprint tome, if right. you will. Right. And one of the things, if I may blow my own horn, is that I, I feel kind of happy about it was that, like, in the 80s, when I went in there, I, I was responsible. Like, I, I was into a lot of uh, Japanese and Italian punk rock. Like, I'd hear this mm. stuff, and I just, even though I didn't know what the hell they were saying, but I just loved all of this music. But I also was the first one to play hip-hop on Maximum Rock and Roll. I kind of convinced them to let me pl uh, play something. Oh, yeah. And uh, But what I was going to say is that one of the things I learned from them was uh, I loved how they would do these shows and they would record them onto cassette and then they would dub them off and then send them out and they would mm. get replayed. So I borrowed that idea from them for when I started doing the uh, Pirate Fucking Radio series, when I started right. doing like... Uh, pirate radio after getting kicked off regular radio. So, w did you did you do something to get kicked off with, with this Calyx or or? Um, yeah, or Calyx. I got asked to leave, um, and then I went over to KUSF because I would get in trouble so often, like for smoking weed in the studio downstairs, <laughs> but mainly for playing the curses. And they were like, you know, it's a big no-no. I mean, was your no. show during the daytime or something? Or? Yeah, it was during the daytime. Yeah, it's a tough one. And uh, you know, different things. Like I remember, I'd go to Leopold Records on the way to the to the show, and bear in mind that before the industry got involved, which is technically like around 91, 90, 91, 92, when the Gavin set up, I guess 90, 90 onwards, when the Gavin Convention <clears throat> set up, the Gavin Convention, and then the Gavin Report. <clears throat> which was the trade magazine that gave birth to the convention. Which is for ra basically for people that don't For the radio for, industry. Yeah, for uh, commercial, non-commercial radio. Right? Exactly. Right. And so they'd been doing it, but they didn't do hip-hop or rap, as it was commonly called back then. So once they got into it, then labels are like, oh, well, we can sell more units because uh, this DJ in this market is playing it. So then they started sending out promos. <clears throat> Before that, DJs would... That's why it was so good to be in a record pool. Otherwise, you had to buy all your own records. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stuff I'd have to buy. Like, and I remember going to buy uh, America's Most Wanted Ice Cube when he first put out. Like, it was the first solo Saint Post NWA. Right. And uh, I bought it on the way to the radio station to Calix when I do my show. Then it was on uh, Sunday afternoon from noon till three. And of course, it's full of curses. And yeah, it's not a radio record. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not a daytime uh, radio record. <laughs> but you know, you're kind of like you're like, okay, on this hand, I got this amazing new record. I really want to play it. I'm, the, you know, I just got it. It just came out. And then on the other hand, it's risking, you know, getting kicked off. But anyway, that was one of the ones I got in trouble, and uh, I did get suspended. They didn't quite kick me off. That happened when I went over then to KUSF because Calix, the uh, general manager at the time, said, you know, they do have an opening because um, they're at uh, 
there's a, the hip hop show that they were doing is no longer going to be there, so you could like move over there perhaps. Mm. So I, that's what I did. Mm. And then lasted there for about th- three or four, three and a half years. And then I got in trouble all the time. Mm. And then one day I was playing like Public Enemy, Music in Our Message. It, I got the advance on it and uh, just played it. And uh, traditionally, Chuck D, Public Enemy, they don't curse. Well, they do curse on that one. And <laughs> that was my, my third and final warning. So I got oh, kicked man. off. Who were your contemporaries in radio in the Bay at that time? Uh, my contemporaries in radio, um, well, there was uh, David D was there with me. Uh, he, well, he sort of came on a little bit afterwards. Uh, Ricky Vincent, the Uhuru Maggot, and then uh, a guy who came along a little after, but joined me on the air because I, I found that it was a lot more fun when you have two people on the air. Was G Spot, hmm. uh, aka Gary Baca, and he was on, and he uh, he he still does radio. He's on KPFK and KPFA. And, um, was Sway and King Tech? That was much and Sway and King. No, they were there too. Uh, Sway and King Tech. They were on KMEL, and then there was uh, Kpu. Really, was uh, the radio station in my opinion. It's like amazing. They were playing it before anyone else, and there was DJs like Marcus Clemens, uh, G Man, and uh, many, many more. But uh, they they were all on at the same time. And Kevy Kev at KZSU. Yes. Yes, KZSU. That's and Kevin Kevin. Santa Cruz or no? Am I wrong? I'm sorry. I should not miss Stanford. That. But, Stanford. But you're right. And then uh, also Cutmaster Kurt, who's uh, he was on there too. And and of course, like some of the guys, I think Cutmaster Kurt might have lived in Santa Cruz as well. But it was on on Stanford. Right. Yeah. Radio in the Bay is incredible history. It's, yeah. It's really un, un, undeniable, if not one, probably one of the greatest, I think, markets. In America. And KFJC is another great station. I mean, there's so many good ones in the Bay. Right, right. So uh, so then Pirate Fucking Radio, which a lot of people know you for that, too. So that And, and you know what? My first like foray into, into literally into uh, Pirate Radio was when I lived in California. I lived in, in Arcata. I went to college in Humboldt State. Oh, okay. So a lot of weed you smoke probably came from there. And do you know K-Mud? That station? Of course, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. Because yeah. uh, Ken, the station manager here, has sort of collaborated with them on things, and I'm oh. hoping to do um, a, a show with them. Oh, cool! I yeah. hope so. Yeah, great. It's people. a good station. Yeah, and KHSU, which is the Humble State Radio Station, and but there, there is actually a long-running pirate radio station that's moved around. It's in van, in a van somewhere that moves around Humboldt, and um, there's just something. What's it called? Um, well, uh, you know, the call letter, I think it's the frequency and the call letters have changed over the years. It's just Humboldt Free Radio okay. or Humboldt Pirate yeah. Radio. Yeah. Um, but there's some really great people. I, I, I DJed and, and rapped on it and hosted shows in, in the, some of the weirdest locations, too. Yeah. Like usually in someone's garage or a loft or something like that. But, um, you know, Pirate Radio in California and on the West Coast really is is a serious phenomenon and i hope it's still thriving it's been a while since i lived in california but yeah it's not i mean the internet kind of killed off a lot of things or made them less relevant right but there still is um the the one i got involved with was free radio berkeley oh nice so a former uh, calyx dj paul griffin um he was uh he used to do reggae on calyx and then he hooked up with this guy uh, Stephen Dunifer, and he'd been telling me, he's like, yeah, there's this uh, free radio Berkeley, and it's pirate radio. And I knew, because in Ireland, I grew up on pirate radio. Right, because there's no, there's no college radio in, 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 no. in Europe and the UK and stuff. And 
Right. And that's the other thing, too. Like you were asking at the beginning of this uh, conversation about like listening to music. And, you know, you hear it all the time, like you read any interviews with people and they talk about how they were kids, you know, they'd have the transistor under their pillow at night. (laughs) And that's how you would hear Radio Luxembourg. Mm. Um, Like and Tony Prince with the DMC is connected with there. But they played such an important role. And that's because like and even the BBC at the time, it was lame. I mean, there was one station that's and in Ireland, there was. Uh, RTE, the radio station, one station, the government station, and if you're lucky, you'd hear like a little bit of pop music, and that's why pop, top of the pops on television mm-hmm. pl- on a Thursday night, half hour of, of music would play such an important role for people because you just couldn't get the music. That's all you got was that's, half an hour. That's all you got. And then in the 70s, uh, the uh, mid latter 70s, uh, pirate radio came along in Ireland, and they started like playing all this stuff, like all of the, the punk and, you know, the all of the punk, and then later the, the new wave bands, and they totally blew it open, and it was a revolution, but at the time, you know, the the police, the Garda would come around, and they would like batter in the doors, it would be like in wow. some building, and they would d- destroy all the equipment or take it all, and beat up the people in there, you know, so this, these were the guys who would do like these radio stations, so that was the pirate radio that I was familiar with. And then Paul Griffin said, no, no this guy is Stephen Dunifer. So I had just gotten kicked off of KUSF in, uh, I guess it was 94. And I said, you know what? Because he'd been asking me, he said, yeah, you should do these things. Because he said, we have this van and we'll drive up into the Berkeley Hills up by Tilden Park. And then we'll just park there. And then we have this thing. And we tap it into like a, a battery for a car radio battery. Mm. And then we can do it. And you just need this, this, and this. So I was fascinated by it all. And I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to do this now. Uh, so then I connected with those guys and then started doing the uh, pirate radio. Just out of that van? Yeah. And they I'll, had gear in there? They, they had, had turntables? And... Yeah. No, no, just, just basic gear. So what I ended up doing was I was like, well, he said, you could just do a recording, a cassette. And I was like, okay, mm. I'll do that. And uh, so I started doing that, and then we would record it. So it would be like you and me sitting down here. We would record it in real time onto a cassette, a high-bias cassette, later DAT, when I bought a DAT player, nice. a recorder, and just record it, and then as if it was in real time, and then showing in the music, and no edits, and then that would be it. And mm. then dub off copies. And then I started kind of connecting, as I mentioned earlier, with the, taking the maximum rock and roll model, and uh, getting it, I thought, well, you just do the one thing, and then you can send it out. And I would make these, dub off these cassettes, and I'd send them, there was Free Radio Santa Cruz, which was a pirate station, Right, and then and then I would go visit these stations too. Like in Santa Cruz, there was Skidmark Bob, and I went down there, and they had this like little shed out the back of a house where they would broadcast from. And then uh, there was down in Miami, there was one called the Bomb. Up in Seattle, there was uh, Free Radio Seattle. And then in the Lower East Side, and you know, again, this was um, a time like mid '90s, early, uh, early mid '90s when. Lower East Side was still pretty like hardcore. Sure, definitely. So uh, there was one called Steal This Radio, mm. and they were in. It was a, basically a squat, and then they jacked the uh, electricity to get in there. And I went to visit them too, but they were among the ones. And I think at one stage it was maybe eleven or twelve stations that we would send out the uh, pirate fucking radio slash fuck the bullshit. That was like the original name for it. Uh, the radio shows, which we ended up doing like a hundred and all. Oh, amazing. Oh, 100 episodes. 100 episodes. Yeah. Tra- so it was like a syndicate, like almost like an underground syndicated show. Yes. Physically mailing the yes. cassettes of them. Yeah. Exactly. And that was when, like, then, like, I ran into Cubert uh, and those guys one right. night was out, and then uh, they were like, oh, what's going on? And I go, we heard you got kicked off the air. And 
that's messed up. And I go, yeah. And they, I said, well, I started doing this thing now where we do these. And they go, oh, we sh- we'll come through and do one. And that was how the Sugar Fragger show kind of uh, came about. It's just sort of by accident. Right. And then there was like the one, I think, uh, with the coup, where I th- recently posted that thing. Like different people would come by and hang so out. So come by to what, your house? My house. So I would do them in my house, just do them in the living room, and then we just record them there. Hmm. And that was sort of the setup. And it was just sort of, you know, a basic little setup. And, but just, you know, again, just coming back to it and having a bit of fun. And I, I really felt strongly about the music, and I, I felt I was so tired of constantly getting in trouble right. over having to edit things and not play curses and, you know, spending hours and hours of editing. And I, I just felt that it fucked with the art form that this is the way it's made. And my feeling was that you don't mess with poetry and start taking out words. You don't take paintings and start, you know, blanking out parts of it because you're essentially messing with an art form. So I said, ah, you know what, I'm just going to do this and sort of, you know, quote unquote, keep it real. And sort of threw myself into that. And I thought, you know, fuck radio. I'm sick of it anyway, which I was of commercial radio. But I still did love the, the uh, you know, stations like WFMU. But I kind of refused to do it until then, the end of the 90s. And I went back via KPFA. Yeah, but during that pirate radio time is when, I mean, you really um, uh, um, helped a lot of those then somewhat underground artists. I mean, especially with the DJ, the, the your um, kind of help spreading that music of like invisible scratch pickles uh well approved scratch hamsters yep um dj quest live human all of these like guys that during that time that shit was like really like blowing up like through the mid to late 90s too and really propelled these guys especially cuber and mixmaster mike and and i mean any number of these guys into like you know international like stars for djing because the dmc competition like you know, you mentioned Tony Price. Uh, Prince. <clears throat> Prince, right. yeah. Who's like your doppelganger, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I know. Right. It's so funny. <laughs> Someone bought me a drink once, and they were like, yeah, you're welcome, Tony. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll keep the drink. <laughs> Tony was the kind of original um, host or judge of the DMC DJ competition. Yeah, right? the founder, so, yeah. The founder, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I and I'd love to talk about that, but, but conversely, at the same, almost simultaneously, you're also like kind of helping put on or or at least uh, supporting and nurturing a lot of the hip-hop stuff that's coming in the bay at that time and it's not just uh underground shit it's like really a mix of like the hard gangster shit of that era as well as like the real like esoteric somewhat like dirty grimy underground shit so i'd love to kind of explore that just a little bit because you know, you and I would even say, uh, like my good friend DJ Steph too. Yep. Uh, shout Vin- out to DJ Steph. Yeah, Vinyl big, Exchange. Big shout out, big shout out to DJ Steph and Vinyl Exchange. Just like David Paul's Bomb Hip Hop Magazine. These are these little um, elements and or icons within the the Bay Area community that really kind of was the glue. I feel like that brought that. Also, uh, uh, P minus of, of ATAC. I feel like there's these kind of yeah. community members. It's funny I should mention, sorry to interrupt, but I just sort of came across his catalog. I had forgotten about him for it was a while. Vast. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would love to talk about some of those artists too because you, you were even on some of these guys' albums. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, eleven five, uh, yes. mind you, on Dog Day Records too. But please go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is that you know, again, like. W- when you think about, we were talking about record pools, and it's very easy to kind of get uh, ca- caught up in the present tense and forget about how different things really were. And, of course, the Internet is the big cha- game changer, pre-Internet and, and later. But there's other things, too. And uh, 
one of the things that, you know, rap versus hip hop, the word comes up like, you know, I was digging up going back to 1994, did a thing for Amoeba blog, who I write for all the time on uh, going back, tracing back (coughs) charts from 1994. Billboard was hot rap singles. That was rap was the word they used for their top 40 weekly chart. The Gavin was also rap was the word that they used for their singles chart. So it was still used generally. But in the Bay Area, it was kind of like there was two different, like say, going back to 1994, 22 years ago. At that stage, there was a big division between hip-hop and rap. And a lot of times, there'd be guys who would say, like, oh, yeah, I'm a hip-hop DJ. I don't fuck with that rap shit. Right. Meaning, I would never play Orbiel Posse. And that was literally what DJs, you know, friends of mine who would say. And I go, oh, it's good. They go, Sibo, you know, uh, they're like, that's not even music. That's not hip hop. You know, that's just that gangster street shit. And I I kind of always tended to uh, embrace it all. Right. And uh, and I really did like it all. But it was quite different. But the thing is that I would sort of do that. So there was sort of the the souls of mischief. They would have fallen under the hip hop. And they would be, so a lot of the DJs would tend to play more East Coast stuff because generally speaking, most uh, Bay Area music was mob street and uh, gangster or mac you know like uh, as right. in too short sure pimp mac daddy stuff whereas east coast was different and also uh, the 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 whole structuring of the music too was different the production was quite different and west Very coast always so. tended to be bass heavy because it was made for listening to in the car right so that was one of the differences but uh I, I did. I loved I loved it all. And it's interesting because I go back and I listen and it'll be like totally all over the place. Right. Whereas the music and I would always incorporate that. So whether it was hardcore gangster or not. So with 11.5, I I'd sort of I was also uh, I would collaborate I, as a writer like I did uh, television. So I do video shows playing hip hop music. I ended up doing writing. And um, what I was starting to say earlier was uh, at the radio station, I ended up on the, the, the commercial radio station. And then one day, I think it was like in 1987, I got a, uh, <clears throat> a phone call from somebody and said, hey, I'm, I, uh, I'm the editor. I just took over as editor of San Francisco Independent. And mm-hmm. I really like your show. Would you be interested in doing a weekly music column? And we'll pay you like uh, $75 a week, which is even like, that was a lot of money then. I'm like, great, sure. I, I, I do it. And uh, so I ended up, that's how I sort of ended up doing it. Consequently, uh, when the Source magazine, which I heard about through City Hall distributors, who I was friendly with, and that was my way of getting my free music. Some people would start up fanzines to get it, but I was sort of I was hooked up with these different people, and and then um, Walter Z, uh, Walter Zelnick at City Hall, he's like, yeah, there's this, and I said, yeah, I heard about that. I read about it in Billboard actually, the Source out of Boston. So I got in touch with them, and I ended up writing for them, mm. and I'd already been writing for the San Francisco Independent, so. All of that sort of led to me, then I would end up connecting with all of these people. I would write all the bios, the press releases, and I would help people with how to kind of structure their press releases. Who did you write um, bios for? Virtually everybody. (laughs) So like you name it, I did them all. In the Bay? In the Bay. And then I would hook up with the national labels that did it too. So Tommy Boy, I did all of the Tommy, so like all of these different ones. Uh, Digital Underground, right. and then like Too Short, uh, E40, when he finally got signed. To Jive. To Jive. I would do all of theirs, but I would also do all of these local guys, too. Right. So I was sort of well-connected with the uh, music people who are a one-stop, and they also owned In A Minute. So I do all of In A Minute's things, and I would sort of, you know, one thing leads to another. And there was a Funky Fat Graphics. They were a company that would do 
they were like Pen and Pixel down mm -hmm. in uh, Texas, I believe. Right. So they were kind of early on in using computers, which was again, you know, then versus now was a big deal. Sure. Uh, so they would do that. They they did nearly all the album covers, and I did nearly all of the bios and that. So consequently, I got to know all these guys. Mm -hmm. So people like Eleven Five, they're like, yeah, come on over to the studio. We're over with TC and the Enhancer over in the Fillmore over there. Uh, stop by. So I go over there and we, we'd be smoking. I mean, one thing I shared with everybody was I love weed. So I'd be smoking with them. And we were outside joking. And then we were like joking. There was like this white couple walk by. And then they see these all these black guys. And then me, the white guy, stand there. And they cross the street and walk away. Mm. This is in the Fillmore. And we were laughing about it. This was like taking a break. I was interviewing them for doing their bio. Right. And then uh, we, we, I was like saying, hey, you're not going to jack me. I was like making a little joke. They sure. said, you should come in and do that. We'll record it now. So we went in. And uh, TC, the uh, producer, was there, and they, they recorded the thing. And that sort of led me to doing then these drops. So then people would sort of say, hey, man, can you do a drop for me? Pooh Man. Uh, <laughs> Pooh Man, uh, all right. EA Ski, different people. Amazing. So I ended up doing those as well. Right. How did it, like, uh, I mean, I would love to get uh, even a little more specific. And I'm trying to think, because I didn't, it's not like I wrote a list of these artists, but... Um, but I know one, one of the more heralded ones and the, one of the most iconic ones of the Bay was Mac Dre. Yes. And you obviously had a, a, had a real close relationship with Mac exactly. Dre. And uh, in, in fact, you just kind of un unearthed uh, this incredible interview you did with him in 1996 while he was incarcerated. And, and I have another one, like I think it's from 91, where he's doing a track uh, with Kyrie, his producer, playing acoustic guitar. Wow. And uh, it's him like sort of doing... Uh, one of his songs over like an acoustic version so i'd had him on the show and then that one that you're referring to was when he was incarcerated mm. but i was also a character witness in the federal court so i went up to sacramento as a character witness on behalf of mac dre um, i did that for some other artists too um, and really? again again because i'm sort of like the white guy and so I like sort of this older white guy. So I dress up nice and it was sort of carry a little bit more weight and maybe right. sort of help sway. And, you know, and I really I became very close and friendly with these guys. And like Mac Dre, I just thought he was a really nice, good guy. And yeah. I felt like he was just totally railroaded. And that interview you're referring to, you know, addressed it. I mean, he went to jail for just under five, four and a half years he spent in jail, in federal, uh, you know, to in, the penitentiary. In, in, what's it called? Lomp, Lomps? Lompoc. Lompoc, which is down in Southern California. Yeah. And he did get moved around a little bit too. But he went to jail based, you know, f for a crime he didn't, that he, they, it wasn't like on a crime he committed or some, you know, he wasn't even there, but they right. still sent him off. Yeah, so for people that that aren't familiar with this too, and, and you should, if you go to the Hip Hop Slam uh, YouTube page, there's a there is an audio a clip of this. Um, but apparently, he went down to Fresno with some friends to like they, and he had just done a show down there with like Big Daddy Kane and and uh, and a bunch of people, and he just like they bagged him up on like a on a trumped up charge, and uh, it, and 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 Billy did a, a phone interview with him from from prison, but. And I did another one with him from uh, Fresno when he first, because first they arrested him and they put him in Fresno County. Mm. And that was where he did his, the EP, he did a, a, like a whole tape from there that was put out, like released. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So like, how, uh, what was the first time you guys connected? Was it when he came onto the show or? Yeah, um, when he came onto the show, like first there was um, the Mac. The Mac was killed. So that was kind of the guy who was before him. And this is on Kyrie's Young Black Brother label. Right. So then next came along um, Mac Dre. And so then he came on the show. And then like, I wrote about him in the Source magazine and in other, like I wrote for other, other uh, magazines and papers as well. 
Um, but uh, yeah, and he came on the show, and uh, then I was even in the uh, California Living video. No way. So I kind of connected him with this uh, friend of mine who was just starting to do videos. So again, it was like a real small little world, and then right. I dabbled in a little bit of everything, whether it was writing or you know, uh, radio or doing. Uh, the uh, video things, but also just knowing all these different people and then just sort of connecting. Did and it, you, oh, please go ahead. No, and it was kind of like this own little um, self-contained scene because, again, like especially with the gangster stuff, people were like, oh, well, no one gives a shit about this anywhere except for here in the Bay Area. So we'll just sort of do it for ourselves. So all of these like gangster rappers like from San Francisco or for wherever, they just kind of did their own thing. And it was a self-contained little sort of close-knit community Consequently, right? Did you um, did you know or encounter Master P at that time? Because he had the real Untouchables. True, I, I did all of Master P's bios. Nice. What and was that like? What was he like? Because this is he, his his beginning of his career was in the Bay Area. Exactly. Right? So he's from Louisiana. He moved to the Bay Area to the East Bay to the city of Richmond, California, which is a pretty tough, sprawling uh, area. And he was there, and then he had his la his label uh, downtown Oakland over by the, the lake, and uh, No Limit, it was called. So he started out, and then he uh, sort of, um, well, first there was Herm Lewis, who I also knew and, and worked with. Uh, he got out of jail, and he put out his compilation, which was uh, Trying to Survive in the Ghetto, mm -hmm. a San Francisco compilation. Uh, by And that was in 93. So who was on that? So that was Rappin' Forte. Orbiel Posse, JT, the bigger figure, and all of these other great artists from San Francisco. So that sort of took off, and that really deserves a lot of credit because in different markets, like in Detroit, uh, in uh, different places like Kansas, different places across the country, they would get these, the, the, those CDs. They started listening to them. And interestingly, when you go back and you listen to early 90s music from a lot of places around the country, you're like, wow, that sounds kind of like... Uh, Bay Area stuff. And part of the reason is that people, you know, usually they listen to something and then a year later they do their record and it sounds like what they've been listening sure. to. And uh, that was part of the reason. In the case of Master P, well, you know, Master P, uh, I really greatly admire him primarily as a businessman and a very shrewd, savvy guy and very hardworking. So I knew him from early on. I'm even in one of his videos too. What? When, really? when they're gone. <laughs> Generally, I'm the white guy in the video. <laughs> And it's funny, like with the master, with the Mac Trey, when I was looking at it on online recently, like someone's like, you know, like how how people are with comments on right. YouTube, like who the hell's that white boy? <laughs> and I was laughing. That's uh, Billy Jam. But but yeah, but it, Master P, I was in uh, his too, and uh, but I would do like all of the different things. But what I admired about him, so we worked closely together, and I would sort of give him little tips on things that I would see, that sort of just you know suggestions. But he would get up early in the morning and work his ass off, and he really worked hard. His brother, Kevin Miller, had been killed, and he kind of took that mm. as an inspiration. And he would sort of go in, like KML Radio, I forget if it was Monday morning or Tuesday, they'd have their like meetings where they'd take presentations from local artists, independent artists with the music. And he just hustled and hustled and just tried everything. Mm. So he'd stop by my house, and he might be have some of the guys with him. Um, is some who are relatives, like Silk the Shocker, no uh, King George, different people, and he'd do it. And, but they would work really hard. And he... They must have been like teenagers at that time, right? They were young guys, I right? guess they were, yeah, because this was like back in the early 90s. Uh, and then like he, he, he saw how Herm Lewis did this thing with the compilation. So he kind of took that, and so did D-Shot. D-Shot with the Boss Balling compilation. And they realized like, wow. And again, this is when people actually bought music. Nowadays, Billboard album charts... 
someone could have a number one album. And maybe if it's Lady Gaga, it, uh, it might sell two million copies, but it could even be a number one Billboard album, you know, top seller of the week, and it may only sell 45,000 right. for the whole country. Right. So back then, you have these guys, and they were selling, like D-Shot, I think it was like 100,000 or something. And mm. so then West Coast Bad Boys was the one that uh, Master P did, and he put it together and did the whole thing. And then uh, Dwayne, actually Dwayne Terry, who did Tired of Me, E-40 is another guy that I was very, you know, very supportive of early on. And right. people were like, oh, man, he's whack. You know, it's like rapping too fast. He's, he can't really rap. He's people not slept on him so hard yeah. in the early days. Yeah. But anyway, the, but, the whole click. Yeah. I mean, the click was, there's a lot of talent there, but we can talk about that. Right. Second. But anyway, this guy, Dwayne Terry, who is a really talented guy, video producer, does radio. He's down in uh, Florida now. And uh, he was upstate New York. But anyway, he started doing like all these different videos. So he did like uh, those ones. He also did the Master P. He did that. Tardy Been Stepped On. He did uh, many other ones for Sick With It. And then he also did that Master P, the big, uh, the, the one where there was all of them. I forget what it's called, but it's from that compilation where everybody was on it. Right. And uh, so Master P did that. And then at the same time, he kind of relocated back to New Orleans and then, you know, tapped into everything. And sort of like at Young Blee, like people from there and from all over, like uh, Texas and, and New Orleans. He was like, you know, a lot of people would diss him, you know, like he kind of copied the Looney's ice cream and like, he took different things and he would copy. But really, he was more like sort of like a puff daddy in a way that he was just shrewd and he knew what to take. Like Absolutely. He was more of a smart businessman. He was kind of a genius, honestly. Exactly. Like. And I give him, you know, major uh, props for, for all of the things that he did. So he kind of took that and then took it down south and basically took the Bay Area model, mm -hmm. the blueprint, and then kind of you know, perfected it and then took it national. Right, right. And honestly, now, I, I don't know the history of down there that well, but I, I say there probably wouldn't be like a cash money and all that stuff, Lil Wayne and exactly. Birdman exactly. and so on and so forth, if it wasn't really for Master P to go back there and, and, and apply that blueprint. Exactly. You know? So, which is pretty incredible to think too, because that scene obviously like is huge in its own right. Uh, for so many reasons, but, um, and then, yeah. Like, and may I interject one sure, thing? please. Another thing, too, that I give the Bay Area major props for, and I have so much love and respect for all of these guys, be it E-40 or Too Short or Master P, uh, in that they, they, they perfected the DIY, and they did it, and that's how they did it. And I think that they deserve credit for with, you know, because at that stage, like, there's so many people... I saw them like from the 80s, true. Like they'd be kind of sitting around waiting for a big label to sign them, and it never really happened. And then sometimes people would give up. And then thanks to you know the the good example of artists like you know Too Short who would do it out the trunk at first with him and right. Randy Austin, and then E40 who really him they worked it, man. They knew how to do it. They would like literally fly over to some place, some like in the Midwest, and spend the weekend just sort of going around you know promoting and selling out the trunk their their releases. But all of these guys, you know, they perfected it and they, they proved that you could do it yourself and then land your deal with Universal, as in the case of uh, a masterpiece. Right, right. But you controlled it more and you had more of the profit. Yeah, and by by putting that that initial legwork in, you, you are in more control of your career than if you just go straight into exactly, a deal exactly. where then you'll be beholden to that label and you'll you'll who'll, never who'll never drop recoup. you by the second album. Yeah, and you'll never recoup that advance, and, and then you won't know how to be self sufficient afterwards. Right. 
Yeah, and I, I think that 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 blueprint too of pressing your own tapes, making your own merch, that resonated in the Bay for decades after that. I mean, there wouldn't be uh, Living Legends, Anticon, um, Hieroglyphics, uh, Hobo Junction, it, probably if it wasn't for that first like groundwork of Too Short, you know, E40. I mean, it's safe to say that, right, in a way? Very, very right. safe. And those are good examples, too, because Living Legends, Mystic Journeyman, and Hobo Junction, they'd be out in Telegraph just pounding up and down the street selling their tapes. And uh, and they really did that, you know, and it's like they, they just they worked it, and they, 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 they did the whole thing truly. They're more DIY than anything. And Living Legends, I mean... I just give them so much props too, like they and they were funny about it too. Like they had UHB unsigned and hella broke, right? And that was their little magazine. And then they would have their top ramen parties. So you come along and sort of give some top ramen and pay like ninety nine cents something to get in. So they had food to live off of and uh, and some some money, which I think was like they kind of took that. I think because I think punk rockers used to do that in New York where they'd mm. have like a pizza party like where you pay in a little bit and bring some food as, as well right right yeah they have their own micro industry in itself too like 1998 99 i mean even really through the mid 90s all through the mid 2000s right for sure they they lived in a warehouse out in east oakland before they moved down to la and then sort of got everybody else like the garage and different people on right. there so yeah props to to living legends and and hobo junction too yeah, I mean, you must have uh, obviously worked with Saphir, too, who's yes. so also very slept on, too. You know, yeah, like. exactly, a.k.a. the saucy nomad when he started out. And he was associated with different people, including Digital Underground. Right. Very talented Did guy. Did you ever work with Tupac? Did you know Tupac during that Digital Underground, you know, inception? Uh, no, I met him briefly once, but I never really uh, got to know him. Because Shock G really ran the show, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. And Shock G is also get, deserves credit for the loonies, too. Of course. Yeah, for sure. A uh, funny story, if I may jump in, is like uh, the video show, we used to do it in, in Oakland on the station called uh, Soul Beat. This was in 93. So when they, they finished Ice Cream Man, mm. Chris Hicks. So there's Drew Down, Chris Hicks. Drew, Drew Down, Down. Drew Down kind of introduced, uh, like through his record, introduced the loonies. So he did Ice Cream Man, the one I was saying about how uh, Master P kind of borrowed from it. But he had the video, and I remember like, I also got kicked off the TV show, too, for uh, stuff. like They were like, you've got too many guns and booty in the videos. And their one was like they're cooking up cocaine in the kitchen. Uh -huh. And it was just like full of like stuff. And I was like, they had just finished the video. So they brought it in physically. Chris Hicks comes in. I, we got the, I go, it's clean, right? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so sure. funny because we got in trouble for that one. But um, anyway. That's amazing. What about, um, you know, going back to the magazines, too, Obviously, the Bay uh, produced some pretty, uh, pretty seminal ones. Murder Dog was was a Bay Area magazine. Yes, right? yes. Forty eighty, too. Forty eighty. Did you have much involvement with those two? I did. Yeah, I was involved with those. Um, forty eighty looked like it. Forty eighty came along. Who who who's, who were the who ran those two? Well, uh, Murder Dog, Black Dog Bone, and uh, and it still sort sort of exists, but that that came along a little later. And what was unique about that was that it was all gangster. So it was Bay and Deep South, Dirty South, you know, and that was sort of like mid, mid, mid nineties on, and uh, maybe early nineties. And first it was like this big newspaper style one, and then it kind of went down mm -hmm. to like a regular glossy magazine, and uh, so that was Black Dog Bone. Lachlan McIntyre was the guy who did Forty Eighty. So he did that, and he had a good crew of people. There was many contributors. Um, Eric Arnold was kind of like his editor worked with him. Great writer. Yeah, and then so he was there, and then I was one of many contributing writers. And again, there was a thing like they were like, well, we don't have any money. And I'm like, okay, well, 
I also figured this out. And then one of the guys that I've worked closely with all along is uh, Dogish, a.k.a. Jeff Frontala. So he would do all the graphics. So we started working together from 93 when we did the, the, the TV show on Soulbeat. So I would say, okay, well, how about you give me um, an ad in the back of the magazine? So I put in a Fuck the Bullshit t-shirt, because that was the name of the Pirate Radio Show when we started, an ad for that. So we kind of trade out. But um, So this was Lachlan McIntyre. He... Uh, started out in Santa Cruz, and he was at the the uh, university down there, and I think mm-hmm. Eric was down there too. So it kind of started out, and they kind of you know put together some things. They based, they sort of took a little bit of the bombs blueprint, and then built up off of it, and then they went to a glossy format, and then took it, and uh, you know, and it was doing really well. And then things kind of just sort of came to a halt because of personal issues, and then just the whole economics of running it. Right. But but but. Uh, major props to um, Eric and and uh, Lachlan and all of those guys for doing it because they they put a lot of artists on the covers on the map that otherwise would have been slept on. Seriously, yeah. I mean, again, it was just very indicative of how supportive that that whole scene kind of is of the local talent. I I I feel like for sure. And another thing, if I may just uh, say too, is that you know the rap scenes uh, at that time you know, up and down the West Coast and all over the country were great. I mean, there were so many different ones, up, whether it was in Seattle or uh, out of L.A. or just different parts. Like, there's so many great little magazines, and you'd mentioned the Vinyl Exchange. And, you know, the, these are people who put out these things just purely from love. Sometimes they might do it, as I said, to get free records at first. But but they're covering those records, but too. But they're co- and they're doing the ones that they loved and they wanted. Right. And there was a whole scene that was just very vibrant. Can you remember some off the top of your head um, let's that see, come the, to mind? Sure. There's Informer, like just in the Bay Area alone. Right. And I even did one myself, too. I did one in conjunction with a guy called Docs that was called No Joke. And then no switched Joke, to, yes. Yeah, and then it became Striven. Um, but there was other ones, too. Like there was Roots. There was another one mm. that was from, from Berkeley as well. And it was more kind of um, African-American themed compared to 4080. And uh, let's see, what other ones were there? Uh, there was, um, out of Sacramento, there was one, what was it called? I think Informer. Um, I have a whole, I, I sort of have a habit of uh, archiving everything. So yeah, I have all, all of these ones. At yeah, I home. know that there was, uh, there was one called The Flavor, which was from the Seattle, Northwest. Right. Yeah, that was huge. And you know what? A lot of really, really talented. Props, I think, was another one. Right. Yeah. Lots of great writers came out yes. of all that stuff. You had Jazzbo, who I'm sure you remember, Soul Sides, which we haven't well, even talked about. But. And again, Dave Paul, I got nothing but love for that guy. Right. And he, if you go back to his magazine, The Bomb, and right. as you pointed out, it sort of was, for, well, first I met him because I met him in the late 80s and he was on KCSF. And he goes, yo, man, how are you going to write about my thing in the source? I'm like, who are you? And he goes, I'm Dave Paul. And he goes, I do a, sta- I do a show on uh, the, co- the community college, City College of San Francisco, right. KCSF, or I think it's called. And I, w- I was like, well, wait a minute, that's only on cable. Well, I lived in San Francisco at the time for a couple of years in North Beach. And I was like, oh, you can pick it up on Channel 27, audio only. Mm. And otherwise, you'd hear just in the dorms. But he is like one of the most driven, uh, motivated people I knew. So he took that, uh, and even though it was only on cable, San Francisco, which a lot of times people didn't know where to find it or when, right. and on the just within the campus, sort of broadcast, just sort of not on not on the FM dial, and he did it like turned it into like he did like a little one sheet that had his charts, and then he turned it into a two sheet back and front and put on pictures. Then it became a magazine, and then uh, it always stayed as a black and white magazine, but. 
as you mentioned, he had Jazzbo, Jeff Chang, mm -hmm. uh, aka DJ Zan. Uh, at right. the time, and so many great writers that contributed. Yeah, Dave Tompkins, um, Hua Tzu, um, uh, I don't even know if Oliver Wang possibly too, you know. No, he wasn't. That was before his time. Right, right. But um, yeah, and I mean, even I was looking back, maybe even like Peanut Butter Wolf or Shadow too. Yes, they were yes. starting to do reviews. Yeah. Um, Steph, DJ Steph, I'm, uh, I would think. Yeah. Just so it's dope to like kind of remember that too, because it was artists and writers and kind of people on the scene and DJs all kind of doing a little bit of everything, yeah. you know. And I, I do think that so many um, people started out as DJs, too. Oh, like no Nearly question. all of those writers were also DJs. Right, right. Did you know uh, Dave Funkenklein? Yes. Yeah. What was he like? Cause he's he was a real nice guy. Yeah. He yeah. was a... He lived out there too, right? Or did he come to the live in the Bay at one point? I am. Um, he visited the Bay. He would come visit during the Gavin. Right. Okay. Right. But he didn't live there. Yeah. He was such a now looking back a too, visionary. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and for some people that might not know who he was, and he uh, was into the Japanese stuff too early on. Yeah. And he took, uh, you know, he took American artists to Japan too. You know, uh, but he would uh, be probably most known as the the head A and R of Hollywood Basic Records, and would sign uh, Organized Confusion and Peanut Butter Wolf and Charisma, Zimbabwe Legit, which yeah. would, then would be DJ Shadow's first yeah. appearance on Wax, yeah. uh, um, and a, a host of others I, I'm probably forgetting too. So it's just uh, just trying to kind of put all the pieces together because you, because Billy Jam, really, you're like kind of always revolved around multiple scenes like that too. So. Um, trying to think where we can go from here because we covered we've covered so many arts and I know you have a show coming up too. I'm going to be jumping on the air here shortly. Yes, on WFMU. Are you going to be live on WFMU? Yep. Okay, so we'll, make, we'll have Scott make sure that we don't lose any of this too. Are you going live from this room though? No, no I'm going to go downstairs go, okay. and uh, second floor. So, any more questions? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, we can wrap this up too. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, you know because we were kind of really focused on the on the mid 90s but one really quick thing i want to talk about was when you came to new york and started with uh, doing your fmu thing for a while when i was at the knitting factory if you can remember yeah. you would come and we would do these kind of like pirate radio style yes. things yeah, yeah. where we would do live uh radio shows in the bar in the daytime like usually before i had a hip-hop show yeah which is just kind of such a, and you would sort of be doing and this man on the street thing. Exactly. We had rappers come. And then we had one where it was Dose One, and it ended up on one of his albums. It was Dose One versus Bisque, and we mm, uh, right. did one where it was like a freestyle battle, and he was clearly the winner. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and then just kind of to bring it to into the present, too. Uh, so, Okay. No, 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 please, please. Go ahead. What I was going to say point. is that, um, so the thing that with WFMU, and I just have so much love for this radio station. As do and, I. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Ken Friedman is a visionary, you know, the way he sort of led this station and kept it going. And if you go to the website, WFMU.org, it's way better than any commercial or any other ones out there. I want to make sure we don't miss him before he goes so we can make sure we get this saved. Right. But uh, anyway, so, uh, but for here, one of the things that I did was I started I got the thanks to Scott Williams, who who has been helping us with this uh, engineering of this uh, recording. But thanks to him, I learned about how to do remote broadcasts, mm. and I started doing them. So I went to United Kingdom, to Ireland, uh, to Hungary, wow. uh, from the West Coast, and started doing live remote broadcasts, and like the ones you were mentioning from the Knitting Factory when it was still downtown Manhattan. Yes. And, and realizing that, yeah, you can take radio at anywhere and do it live. And the thing about live radio, uh, it's just hard to beat that, you know, just the, the vibe of it. Even if you record something, you know it's going to play back tomorrow, and you don't have any edits – 
it's still not the exact same as doing it live in the moment on the air. Oh yeah, something about capturing that spontaneity is just, it's priceless. Um, well, listen, I appreciate your time so much. Well, I appreciate you, you know, being interested in talking to me. So thank you so oh, much, Peter. Oh, you have an amazing story. Yeah, thanks so much. And, and um, yeah, uh, and I want to also just uh, say thanks to WFMU for letting uh, me come here and you allowing us to, to record here. I usually do it with a little handheld mic, so this uh, feels great. Um, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. So that was it. That was my, my talk with Billy Jam. Um, he's dope. He's amazing. I wanted to say thank you, Billy, for taking the time and let me come in there to WFMU. I also want to thank the station, WFMU. Incredible place. Just a great vibe all around. And yeah, it's the way it should be. You know what I'm saying? There's not enough shit like that right now. We got a lot of the other stuff that we don't need and not enough of people like Billy and, 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 and outlets like WFMU. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I'm grateful for that. So if you're listening to this, know that I'm, I'm thankful again. It's Thanksgiving, so I'm trying to be thankful and express that. As you know, many, many may know, you know, I also DJ, and I go by the name DJ Thanksgiving Brown. This is my particular time of year. I love being able to show love to people and all that. So with that being said, thank you again for tuning in to the house list this was recorded at WFMU, yet, like this and all my other episodes, edited and engineered um, by CJ Stewart, opening music by Dame Funk and Keith Ide. Please subscribe on iTunes, leave a comment, let me know that you like it, let me know that you think it's cool, let me know, you know, even if you're lukewarm on it, you know, let me know what you think. Um, and um, just, you know, know that I appreciate it. One love, y'all. Have a good week, and hopefully I'll see you at the end of this week with an all-new episode, too. I'm not going to say who it is just yet, but but it's going to be a cool one for sure. So keep tuning in to The House List with your man Peter Agostin. Thank you.